Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This hour is being brought to you by CarX Tire and Auto online at CarX.com. Ray, Steve Stone is here. Let's go. Color analyst for the White Sox, Steve Stone, joins Lawrence Holmes. Try it with your bare hand. It's a lot easier that way. Steve Stone is a Cy Young Award winner. He is a fantastic color analyst for your Chicago White Sox, and he is a score baseball expert. As Steve was saying, try it with your bare hand. It's a lot easier that way. Steve actually poked his bare hand in the booth and has cut himself open. Steve Stone talks with Lawrence Holmes. I'm about to pass out. Yeah. <laughs> Loss of blood. Social media got Steve Stone and Lawrence Holmes right now on The Score. Stoney joins me on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Stoney, have you recovered from the churro yesterday? Well, I certainly have. Uh, it wasn't the churro that was bothering me. I think it was the 16 runs on 19 hits. I think that was uh, that was more making me nauseous than anything else. Yeah, it, it, and it started immediately with Dylan C. So what happened? Was it just a really good scouting report, or were there things that could have been avoided in the sequences where we saw Dylan Cease give up seven earned runs? Well, one of the things that you think about right away is when we were in Boston, this team was not hitting. This team, I'm meaning, I'm meaning the Red Sox. They just weren't swinging the bat. Story wasn't able to do much of anything. And the rest of the guys were hitting okay, but nothing consequential. Even though our ball club swept them three in a row and didn't really give them a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of runs or offense, what I said at the time is there's going to come a day in the not-too-distant future when – Pitchers are not going to be dancing in the streets to face this lineup. I mean, when you look at the lineup and you look at Kike Hernandez, excuse me, off the uh, off the COVID list and swinging it okay, although he's going to do a whole lot better. Uh, Devers in that lineup, J.D. Martinez, Bogarts, uh, Verdugo doing okay, but Story hitting everything in sight. Cordero coming back from the minor leagues, doing a pretty good job. So you look at that lineup and you say to yourself, you know, this is this is a pretty good offensive machine when they get going. Unfortunately, what you saw last night was a team that's red hot, led by a hitter who's literally uh, setting the world on fire in Trevor's story. And, you know, J.D. Martinez is going to hit anybody anyway, and they all just bunched together and ambushed Dylan Cease. He didn't make particularly good pitches. And they took advantage of everything. You know, hitters don't hit every mistake. But last night they seemed to do that. So for Dylan Cease, it was one of those nights you put it in the rearview mirror, you go on from there, and you learn from it. You learn that maybe there's certain things you could have done differently. But all in all, when a team is swinging like the Red Sox are, you make a mistake and they're going to make you pay. Cease is a guy that wins a lot inside the strike zone. He He's able to get guys out, overpower them inside of the strike zone. When you have a game like that where they're hitting your pitches inside the strike zone, how do you figure out in in real time 
how to, to reapproach going against this type of a lineup? Well, I think what you have to do is try to make the quickest adjustment you possibly can. And in the first three innings, he gave up seven runs on eight hits. Uh, what was happening was his curveball wasn't near, <clears throat> excuse me, wasn't near the curveball that we've seen him throw recently. So that pitch wasn't working for him. His fastball might have been a little bit straighter, although he got a lot of swings and misses. So that wasn't the problem. It looked like they were looking for certain pitches. Now, uh, the supposition by uh, by Dylan was maybe he was tipping his pitches. They'll go through all the video of the performance and see if he was or if he wasn't. If he was tipping them, well, then it's an easy fix. You just don't do what it is that was tipping the pitch. I don't really know. I didn't get a chance to dissect it all that closely. But uh, along with Ethan Katz, they're going to look in each and every pitch and see exactly what was going on. I just realized that uh, even the best pitchers at times don't have their great stuff, especially if those best pitchers are fairly young. Dylan is, is still in the early part of what should be a tremendous career. I mean, he's still four and two. The ERA went up over four because of that pounding last night, but it'll come back down again. You still have to love his stuff, and uh, hopefully he figures it out sooner rather than later. But I think this is the aberration as opposed to what this season has been. I enjoyed the tutorial last night when you were going through pitch grips with, with Jason. It was a lot of fun, and I, I, I think that it's great for the viewer. When did you start experimenting with which with pitch grips and when did you feel like you had a real good idea of the science of holding and and letting go of the baseball to be a more effective pitcher when i first came through the minor league system uh both uh, you know coming to professional baseball i dominated a lot of leagues uh, like most guys do who become professionals then i got to professional baseball i still had a very big fastball i i was uh the hardest-throwing pitcher in the San Francisco Giants organization. That was harder than Gaylord Perry and harder than Juan Marichal, harder than anybody in their minor leagues. And the fastball was probably, if they were using today's guns, it was probably around 100 miles an hour. I didn't mess around too much with grips because my natural stuff was good enough. But then, after two years of pitching in Candlestick Park and four cases of tendonitis, I lost about 10 miles an hour of that fastball. I always joked that somewhere along that line on that mound in Candlestick Park was 10 miles an hour of my fastball. I just never could find it again. So it took me a couple years to realize that I might have been throwing as hard. It just wasn't going as fast. And when I finally came to the realization that that big fastball was gone, that's when I had to start doing something or leave the league. And I didn't want to leave the league. I thought I could still get some people out. I had a pretty good curveball at the time. Then I decided to change grips and try to do things like cutting the ball. Uh, I could never really sink it, but I could run the ball into the right-handers by using an off-center two-seamer. And you have to make adjustments. I mean, the league tells you when you have to do something differently. And the league was telling me almost on a daily basis that, you know, I need to make some changes. And that's when you start to experiment. You experiment on your side sessions. You experiment in the bullpen with various things, and then you take them into the game. So a lot of these guys with the great natural stuff, they don't know what to do on a given day when that stuff isn't as good as you're used to. And I talk about it all the time. That's learning how to win with less than your best. 
Because on the days when you're enchanted, on the days when everything is working well, when you look at a spot and you throw the fastball and it's right there, you look at that same spot, the slider is right there, low and away to the right-handers, low and into the lefties. I mean, it just goes there seemingly automatically. Same thing with a curveball. You're throwing it, it's breaking sharply, and nobody is really touching it. Those are the easy days. You're going to probably pitch a low-run game. Now, whether you win or not is a product of your baseball team, but you're going to you're going to just coast through that performance. However, you might have that 20 to 25% of the time, which means 75 to 80% of the time you're going to have to learn with some percentage of less than your best. If it's 90% of your best, you're usually in pretty good shape. Sometimes it's only 50% of your best. And instead of just getting knocked out early, you have to make an adjustment. And that is the art of pitching. That's the art of becoming an accomplished major league pitcher is learning how to maximize those days when you either don't feel well for what reason or another, or you you have less than your best. With Lance Lynn, this is what his whole career has been. He's understood that he can manipulate the ball to do four different things on seemingly the same type of pitch. Yeah, I mean, he he's holding the ball off center. He's changing finger pressures. He's, he's releasing it a different way. And Basically, they're all fastballs, if you want to call them that, but they all do something different. I think he feels that he can control the ball better by throwing pretty much of the same pitch. He's also been really effective with it. You know, he's parlayed it into a very nice career and a very nice contract, and uh, the Sox would dearly love to have him back performing like he did the first three and a half, four months of last season. Now, that's all he's going to have this year, which I think bodes well for later in the season, but... uh, when they get him back, hopefully he'll be entirely healthy and can shoulder the kind of load that he likes to shoulder, which is go deep into each and every game and make sure, you know, if you're if you're going six, you're eating up 18 outs. You're going seven, it's 21 outs. And you're leaving less outs for the bullpen to cover. Consequently, those guys have some time off. They stay fresher longer. And if you have a couple of pitchers like that, you're eventually going to have a pretty strong bullpen. We're only through a quarter of the season, and and I'm not suggesting in any way that the White Sox panic, but I am wondering, when would you feel like they would have to do a reassessment of some of their ideas on their the way that their pitching is structured? Meaning, if you're looking at a guy like Michael Kopech and you're saying, look, we've got this plan because we want Michael Kopech to be strong in September and October, which I'm all for, by the way. But now you find yourself five and a half games behind the Twins, and maybe there's a little bit more urgency in the middle of the calendar than you were expecting. Do you think that they would even consider changing some of their objectives or goals for pitchers based on where they are in the standings? Well, the easy thing to do would say put Michael Kopech in there every five days, and you know he's going to be throwing well. But the reality of it is this is going to be his first year to be in a major league starting rotation from the start of the season to the end. And because it's his first year, you're going to have to protect him. Uh, The key is not really adjusting your pitching because I think the pitching is going to be good enough. And, you know, Michael pitched on long rest before that Yankee outing, and he showed you on long rest the stuff is a whole lot crisper. He also threw it for strikes. And he did a lot of things really well in those two performances against the Yankees. I don't think they're going to accelerate anything with Michael Kopech because they view him as a long-term solution to at least 20% of the starting rotation. So they're going to go with that sixth starter every now and then. 
and Michael's not going to be the guy you're going to push up. The problem really, Lawrence, and, and you know, we're going to look at why the Sox are 21 and 21. Uh, one of the things I tweeted today was that there are six teams better than them in the American League. There are eight teams worse than them. 21 and 21 is mediocre. It's neither here nor there. It's not good. It's not bad. And these are the most frustrating seasons. Not the seasons you get blown out because you know you're not that good. And not the seasons where you're doing real well because you know you are pretty good. But the seasons that are most frustrating are the 500 seasons or plus or minus a game or two. And the reason is that as a team, they always feel that they're better than they have. They're always waiting for that five or six or seven game winning streak. They're always waiting for that 12 or 14 streak where they win. They get back into the division race in this case, five and a half games in back of Minnesota. But it's not really the pitching at this point. What it is is very simply. You got Moncada hitting 164. You've got Abreu hitting 225, although he's starting to hit the baseball, which is something that the Sox have been waiting for. You got McGuire hitting 194 and Grandal hitting 174. You got Garcia hitting 188. So you've got five guys hitting under 200. You got another three guys hitting just over 200. That's a whole lot of your offense not there. And when you're scoring a whole lot of runs, I mean, when, when we played the Boston Red Sox in Boston, they would make a little mistake and get buried by it because they were scoring two and three runs a game. Nobody's winning a division title scoring two or three runs a game because everything else is magnified. You make a base running mistake. You don't hit a cutoff man. You make an error on an easy play. You don't turn two and you give them another out. Those things are magnified when the score is three to two. You win that same game 8-3, to three, and all of a sudden, nobody thinks about it. And with five guys hitting under 200 and three guys hitting just over 200, they're not scoring five runs a lot or six runs or seven runs or eight runs. That's going to be the key, to score enough runs in the game so that the deficiencies that you're not going to be able to correct. This is not going to be an exceptional defensive team. It hasn't been for the last couple of years. It's not going to be moving forward. However they're probably going to be better defensively than they've been. But the key will be score enough runs to overcome a bad pitching performance, a missed cutoff man, uh, not turning a double play. All the mistakes that a team can make when you're scoring a lot of runs, they don't show up near as much. And that will be the key for this team. If this team can turn it around offensively, they can take care of a lot of things going forward. I still like the pitching staff. And as the pitching staff gets better, as Lynn comes back, as Cueto hopefully stays healthy, and if he does, we've seen how difficult he can be to hit. This pitching staff in the starting rotation can help carry the bullpen. Then the bullpen looks better, and suddenly it's tough to hit these guys. It's tough to score too many runs. So when you get your five or six runs a game, it's going to be plenty, and that's going to be the key to turning this season around. It's not bad right now. It has to get better if this team is going to be taken seriously as a contender, and I think they will be able to do that. I, I, I view I view Minnesota as a very good team. Uh, right now they've decided a couple days a week they're not going to play Buxton. Buxton is in a slump right now. He can certainly hurt you catching the baseball and running the bases, but he's not hitting the ball as well as he can, and Buxton has a tendency to get hurt. If he goes down, Minnesota looks like a different team. Right now they're getting some pretty good pitching, which has been surprising. We'll see if that holds up. 
As you mentioned, Jose Abreu, the last seven games, it's great to see. 346, 433, 731 is his slash with two home runs and seven RBIs. What are you seeing in his at-bats over the last week? It's just a question of, you know, the weather getting a bit nicer, although it wasn't nice last night and he still hit a home run. But when he started to drive the ball the other way, uh, make sure that you're waiting long enough on certain pitches. Don't go out to get everything. Let the ball come to you. And I don't mean let it get deep. What I mean is just let it come to you. Don't try to go out and anticipate every breaking ball because you're not going to hit those. As he starts to hit the ball to right center field, then all of a sudden pitchers start to come in. They start to make mistakes. He starts feeling better about himself. He starts hitting mistakes very hard, and that's what he's in the process of doing. I mean, this guy has hit for a long time. He's driven in runs for a long time. I don't believe that he has gotten old in the, in the, uh, in the course of two months. I do believe that uh, he's due for a very hot streak, and let's hope the guys behind him can pick it up. I mean, the biggest factor, and, and we know this, uh, the ball club perennially has trouble with really good right-handed pitchers with good sliders or mostly or curveballs, but mostly it's good sliders. They have a hard time with that. Consequently, it shows up even more when the left-hand hitters are not hitting. Moncada just back in the lineup, when he gets it together, and hopefully he will, that's going to help. Uh, Moncada and Grandal have got to do the job against some of the tougher right-handers. Same thing with, with Gavin Sheets. I mean, he's only hitting 215. And the left-handed difference makers have got to make the difference against right-handed guys with good sliders. Because outside of Tim Anderson, who's hitting everything in sight right now, which is a wonderful thing to see, and Luis Robert, who now, you know, you get him, get him starting to go, and all of a sudden he winds up on the COVID list. But those two guys have pretty much shouldered the load from the right-hand side all season long. But it's time for the left-handers to step up and get the job done. I think Andrew Vaughn's going to be able to hit. Right now he's sitting there and, and he's hitting 287. It hasn't been as consequential as he would like. He's eventually going to drive in runs by hitting the ball in the ballpark and hitting a lot of doubles. But that being said, uh, he hasn't done a whole lot extra base hit-wise in the month of May. He's going to get better at that. And uh, that's going to be one of the guys that will consistently do the job. But again, it comes down to the left-handers. When you talk about Grandal, and you and I had a conversation last year, I remember, where you were saying, look, it's great that he's drawing walks, but they do need him to be a run producer in some of these situations. Now he's not doing either. What's going on with his at-bats from your perspective, and why are we not seeing him draw more walks and get on base? Last year's on-base percentage was, was 352. Right now it sits at 272. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly uh, what it is. I do know when a guy isn't hitting much, um, people are not going to walk him because he's not swinging the bat well. People start to walk guys that are a threat to them. When a pitcher perceives that this guy is not a threat to you, He's not going to walk you. That's as simple as that. Uh, I think maybe he started off this year, and I'm just guessing. I don't know if that knee was 100% healthy when the year started. I don't know how it is now, but I I realize that, um, you know, looking at 174 uh, and uh, an inconsequential 174, the Sox need him to be able to produce because, you know, quite frankly, telling it like it is, he's not going to help you much defensively. So when he doesn't hit the ball, that's a problem. And so far he hasn't hit it. 
if he starts coming alive, and bear in mind last year it took him a while, but when he did come alive, he was a killer in the middle of that lineup. And the Sox are hoping they can see that same guy again because, you know, knowing the configuration of our lineup, uh, they don't have the consequential left-hand hitters. I mean, you take a look at take a look at um, some of the real good teams that get the job done. I mean, Devers means so much to the Red Sox because they have a lot of right-hand hitters. They've got Martinez and Bogarts. Uh, Verdugo means something to them, although he's not hitting the ball as well as he can. Freddie Freeman in the Dodgers. Well, yeah, I mean, all all these guys, Lawrence, that that balance out lineups. Uh, even Olsen. I mean, Olsen's not hitting like he can for Atlanta, but eventually he's going to. But, yeah, look, the preponderance of starters in all of baseball, certainly in the American League Central, they're right-handed starters just about each and every team. Now, now Detroit, who's going to be a non-factor this year, they have a certain amount of left-handed starters, but most of the starters are right-handed, which means it really helps you to have consequential left-hand hitters. Sox have never had that great balance in their lineup, but the guys they do have have to produce from the left side. When Tony La Russa was hired, I was concerned that he wouldn't be able to get with the culture of the White Sox clubhouse. And, and particularly, I was wondering on whether or not he and Tim Anderson would see eye to eye. It seems like my concern was not well placed. These two guys seem to get and understand each other. I thought it was interesting this weekend hearing Tony talk about Tim in a very paternal way, especially after the incident with Josh Donaldson. Well, I would say apparently Tim is getting along very well with Tony because what would he hit, 450 if he was, if, if he was even better? I mean, he's hitting 365. So he's hitting 365. He's one of the dominant hitters in baseball. As a leadoff hitter for the Sox, he's driving in runs. He's, uh, he's hitting home runs. And he's stealing bases and doing just about everything offensively you could ask for. So, yeah, they're they're getting along just fine, and uh, I, I don't think that's a problem whatsoever. I think I think when a team is not performing like they should, uh, if they're not hitting, the first thing is, well, let's fire the the hitting coach. If they're not pitching, well, let's fire the pitching coach. If they're not hitting or pitching, let's fire the manager. I mean, fans want to fire everybody on a daily basis. Then, of course, they want to fire the front office. And so eventually you wind up firing everybody else, and then, Lawrence, you and I wind up running the baseball team, which would be a disaster. So you can't fire everybody because players aren't performing. Somewhere along the line, you have to look at the players and say, it's time for you guys to perform. It's not that they're not trying. I hear fans on Twitter all the time, well, they look like they're going through the motions, which could be about the dumbest statement I've ever heard. These guys didn't get to the major leagues by going through the motions. You go out there every day literally trying to do the best you can. Now, the only problem that I have is not their desire, not their preparation, or not anything else. The only problem I have is when guys don't hustle. Now, there are certain reasons why a guy won't hustle on a given play. We don't know every day if their legs are banged up or not. But if a guy doesn't hustle over a period of time, you start to think perhaps they can play a little bit harder. And that's one of the things that I think um, I think when major league players look in the mirror, when they're not doing what they should do, I think you have to say, am I doing everything on a daily basis to make myself better? If the answer is yes, then eventually you'll get through it. If the answer is no, then you change it. And that's what they have to do.
Stoney, as always, I appreciate the time and the information. I'm I'm glad that you did not consume that milkshake, even though it looked delicious. <laughs> as as someone who is also lactose intolerant, it looked great, but you can't have it. So you just can't have it. Yeah, I, I wanted to stay in the booth for the game, although it didn't work out particularly well. And if you have those, you you usually can't. So um, yeah, it was it was something interesting, but. One thing I'll leave you with, Lawrence, and this is the case with most baseball teams, the answer is coming from inside that clubhouse. The answer is coming from the players who play in a White Sox uniform. That will be the answer or the lack thereof. And nothing else on an ancillary basis is going to tell the tale this year. Thanks, Tony. Be well. Looking forward to watching you tonight. Have a good rest of the show. That is Steve Stone. Score senior baseball analyst and White Sox color analyst. They were hilarious yesterday. I, I got to tell you, the only reason that I kept watching the game last night was because Jason and Stoney entertained me. It's, it's why they're the best booth. They took a, a 16-3 game and made it entertaining. Whether it was them going through the, oh, we've got shakes in the booth. And Stoney's lactose intolerant. He, I was, I did want him to try the churro. Churros over at White Sox are. I'm a big fan, big big fan of the churros. And what I love about Jason, we talked to him about it. I don't remember if I said it on the air or off the air, Ray, with with Benetti, but I think we asked him about like eating during a broadcast. I love that he is is an unabashed, like, yeah, you're going to bring me food? I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to eat it on the air, and I don't care that people see. It was great. And as someone that is lactose intolerant, I but craves some of that stuff, I saw that milkshake they brought out there. I was like, ooh, milkshake with a churro in it? Speaking my language. But Stoney's right. Then you're not going to be in the booth for all nine innings of that game. We'll hear from White Sox general manager Rick Hahn next here on The Score. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there. To-
to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score. It's time for the White Sox Minute. Tim crushes this ball. He throws the bat. The ball goes flying. It is gone. We're going to be South Sour Girlies. South Slider. Hi, Mom! Go Sox, baby. The White Sox Minute on the Lawrence Holmes Show. It is a chilly night at the ballpark. The first of three with Boston. And away we go. Kike Hernandez hammers it to left. And it is gone for a leadoff home run on the first pitch of the ball game for Hernandez and the Red Sox. It's a curveball. Story whacks it to left field. And it is out of here. Three-run home run, Trevor Story. It's an RBI double for Kike Hernandez. And it's 5-0 Red Sox. Dylan's just shaking his head. Number one, because the curveball is just rolling right now. I mean, he's getting no bite on it. It's staying up in the zone. And even when he gets it down in the zone, it doesn't have that late break. So it's one of those nights where you don't have the curve, then go away from it. He made it look like a take all the way, honestly. This rifled into left field. Hernandez had to go back to second for a moment. He's still going to try to come home, and he gets there on an RBI single from Martinez. And the Red Sox have ignited this offense again. It is six to nothing. One ball, one strike. On the ground, up the middle towards second base, and a backhand. See and a turn. Save the call. Looked to me like for Liuri, he wasn't sure exactly how to get it from his glove to second base. Yeah, he tries to flip it. I mean, it's a very difficult play, and then Tim has to reach across with the bare hand. I think this is probably the best they could have done. It was a great attempt at two and out of the inning, but instead, it's a run score. By the way, big hello to our pal Chuck Swirsky, who's watching tonight. He just tweeted at us, so hello, Chuck. A wonderful man. We usually get some wonderful messages from Chuck, who is... The single most positive human being on the face of this earth. He really is. Yep. Great basketball announcer and just a wonderful guy. He and Bill Wennington so good on Bulls radio broadcasts. Oh boy. Chuck's still positive, but it is 16 to 2. Three more. Come across. Vasquez is awfully happy. He's got three hits tonight. Mama said there will be days like this, and this was one of those days. It very much was. The final was 16-3. The highlights were courtesy of NBC Sports Chicago. Jason Benetti and Steve Stone on the call. And the shout-out to Chuck Swirsky and Bill Winnington. Here Bulls games right here on the score. I, I don't know what to say about last night's game. Except that it was super ugly. And it was ugly almost immediately. I mean, immediately. Like, from the start of it. The first pitch of the game. Boom. There, there, There's a long drive. Just got out of here in a hurry. And that lineup was relentless. It was relentless. You had Kike Hernandez go two for six with two RBIs. Devers goes two for five with an RBI. J.D. Martinez goes four for five. Three runs scored. Bogarts one for four with two runs scored. Trevor Story 
two for six with four RBIs. Like it just was a really super ugly situation for the White Sox. Dylan Cease didn't look to be in control or command of that game, and it was uh, it was off to the races. Like it was just like, oh, here it is. It, we have been warned. Like we were talking about this when I was doing transition yesterday. Speaks brought up the idea of Boston and their lineup being in a much better place than what it was a couple of weeks ago when these two teams played each other out in Boston. So I'm not surprised that they were able to score runs. I was surprised that they were scoring runs at the clip that they were scoring them at. Dylan Cease, by the way, his ERA jumped to 4.24. Might not be a... I I should have texted Joe about this since... The schedule says that there's going to be a Cubs game tomorrow, so Joe won't be on the show tomorrow. I should have texted him and, like, if you are a believer in Dylan Cease, maybe this is the time when you would get in on a Cy Young number on Dylan Cease after a performance like that and his ERA ballooning up to 424. Or maybe you've already pushed in all your chips on, on Michael Kopech being the Cy Young Award winner in the American League with the performance that he gave. On, on Sunday night, maybe that's the, the, the direction that you want to go in. But Cease, last night, his line, three innings, eight hits, seven runs, all earned. Two walks, four strikeouts, two home runs. The White Sox, as a, a pitching contingent, gave up four home runs last night. 19 hits total. Ruiz had a really rough night. And then so did Sousa. You know who did pitch well, though? Vincent Velasquez. And I thought that they gave us a glimpse of what his role would be once they are more of a whole team. And I don't think that it's a terrible thing. Like, when I looked at the Velasquez signing in the offseason, like, I felt that the White Sox were two pitchers short when they gave us what their roster was going to be at spring training. Then, and the reason I felt that way was because I didn't, you couldn't trust that Michael Kopech was going to be this. And my hope is that he can be this or around this for all season. Then you get the Lance Lynn injury, and I already didn't have faith in Dallas Keuchel. The Johnny Cueto thing is a very pleasant surprise for the White Sox. It's, it comes at a great time when they really needed someone to take a couple of starts and not throw them away. He's done better than not throw them away. If Johnny Cueto's starts would have been two starts where he goes four and two-thirds and only gave up two runs, getting those innings would have been significant. But he's been dominant in his two performances. He's giving you 12 innings without giving up a run. That's great. I think that it opens the door. Stoney's talked about it. Rick Hans talked about it a little bit. It opens the door to a six-man rotation. And hold on. For those of you who are watching on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670 The Score, let me do the air quotes on it. You know what's weird? I don't know why baseball teams don't like talking about the concept of a six-man rotation. 
say, oh, well, there'll be opportunities. Like, that's the sort of thing that you hear. Well, there'll be opportunities to do a six-man. If, if that's what helps you get through the season, considering you're probably going to have innings limits on at least two of the, your guys in the rotation, Kopech and Lynn, Lynn it, starting out for sure as he's ramping back up, then, yeah, why not do that? If Johnny Cueto is still effective when Lance Lynn comes back, there's no reason not to do that. White Sox have a series in Toronto coming up, don't they? Isn't that on the schedule? I'm very interested to see what their what their rotation will look like. And we'll find out, like, who's going to Toronto. That's kind of always an interesting thing. Yeah, next week, starting on the 31st, they will be in Toronto. So it'll be interesting to see who pitches in Toronto and who takes the trip to Toronto. On the injury front, general manager Rick Hahn, he usually talks after a road trip. He talked yesterday. He didn't talk specifically about Anderson and and Donaldson, but he did talk about some of the plans. Real quick bite here of him discussing two of the guys that are injured. In more positive injury news, as you guys just saw, Lance Lynn completed a couple of rounds of batting practice today, including against Aloy Jimenez, who is looking very good at this time. And it's reasonable to expect that both players will continue on a pace that would allow them to begin rehab assignments within the next week for both players. So that's good news. Like I was saying yesterday, I expect Lance Lynn to be back in two to three weeks. Aloy would be great if he's back. It would it would add some more punch to a lineup that is definitely struggling. And a texter pointed it out, but it was right there on the screen yesterday. If you look at the White Sox lineup, I'm going to give you the averages of the players that are in the White Sox lineup yesterday. What do you think would be more damning, Ray, if I gave people the batting averages or if I gave them the OPS? I'd imagine probably the... The OPS. Okay, and that's what we'll do. I'm going to give you the OPS of the White Sox lineup yesterday. And keep in mind that you can look for an average somewhere. It varies every year, but between 730 and 750 is an average major league player's OPS, okay? 730 to 750. On base plus slugging. Not just that that it's you're getting on base And how are you getting on base? Here are the OPSs of the White Sox lineup last night. And keep in mind, 730 to 750 is about major league average. Anderson, no problems here. He's one of the best players in the league. His OPS is 932. Jake Berger just comes back. Maybe not totally fair. He has had a bunch of major league at bats. 611. Joan Moncada. 498. Pollock, who's heating up, not yesterday though, 640. And then when he was replaced, Harrison has an OPS of 537. Jose Abreu in the last week has been on a tear. And even on a tear where he's hit really well for seven games, his OPS is 694. Reese McGuire's OPS is 457. 
Ron Dahl's OPS, and I think he was like 825 or 830 last year. His OPS this season is 507. Gavin Sheets, and OPS is 637. Leori Garcia, the lowest OPS in this lineup, 477. Andrew Vaughn, 822. No problems there. Adam Engel, 624. The story is right there. I can give it to you for those of you who don't, like, OPS doesn't resonate with you. I'll give you the averages, okay? Anderson's hitting 365. He's above a two-war player right now. Berger, 233. Moncada, 164. Pollock, 237. Harrison, 176. Abreu, 225. Maguire, 194. Grandal, 174. Sheets, 215. Garcia, 188. Vaughn, 287. Engel, 223. I said one way too many times for that to be a major league lineup. Back after this on the score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Station, Station. It's time for the Cubs Minute. Chicago Cubs baseball is on the air. Fly the W! Wrigleyville fans are awesome. Great food. It's, you know, it's tough to beat. Cubbies. The Cubs Minute on the Lawrence Holmes Show. It's game two of this four-game series between the Chicago Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds. Here comes the 3-1. Swinging a drive toward right. Pretty well hit. Back goes Naquin near the right field fence. That ball is gone. Opposite field home run. Frank Schwindel. Cubs lead 3-0 in the opening inning. As Malley delivers the 3-2, Schwindel swings. Hits one in the air. Deep right field. Going back Naquin at the track. Near the wall. It's gone. Frank Schwindel with his second home run of the game. The second one the other way. And the Cubs extend the lead. 6-2 now over the Reds here in the fifth. Here's Anderton Simmons. Ground ball up the middle and through in the right center field. One run is in as Wisdom scores. Flying around third base and heading home is Rivas. And the Cubs score two more. Here's the 1-1. Chopper up the middle, fielded behind the mound by the shortstop Reynolds. He throws to first in time to get Morrell, but another run scores as Higgins crosses home plate. Cubs now up 9-2 over the Reds here in the fifth. Here comes the 3-1. Suzuki swings and grounds one in the hole at short. Backhanded by Reynolds to second for one on the first. Not in time. Suzuki beats that one out, and the Cubs score their 10th run of the game as Simmons comes home. It is now 10-2 Cubs over the Reds. It's all over. The Cubs make it two in a row here in Cincinnati. They have won three consecutive games going back to Sunday at Wrigley. How about that? Got to take care of business against a team like Cincinnati. And the Cubs, like, historically love to hit in Cincinnati. I guess everyone loves to hit in Cincinnati because, you know, it's the Reds and they're bad and they're not even trying. But you still got to go out there and play those games and win. And as Pat said and Zach said on our broadcast here on The Score, the Cubs have won three in a row. You know what's crazy? The Frank Schwindel story. Like, honestly, 
from being sent to Iowa to, oh, we got an injury, so don't go to Iowa. Come out to the West Coast. And then being back, let me give you Frank Schwindel's last week's splits. Okay, his last seven games. 259, 333, 741. He's hit four home runs with six RBIs and his seven hits in his last week of games after being sent down and then being recalled before he could get sent down. He's not the only one. Patrick Wisdom in his last seven games, 269, 321, 731, four home runs, six RBIs. I know that Wisdom is an older player, even though there's not a ton of major league experience. Like him and Schwindel are kind of in the same boat that way. I'm looking at the Cubs right now and going, who would be attractive to other teams? Because that's still kind of where we're at. They're eight and a half games out. They're still, what, six games under 500 as we sit here this morning. I can imagine even with an average that isn't great, he slugs. So maybe a guy like Patrick Wisdom could find himself on a contender. That's about as far as I'm willing to go on the conversation on the Cubs. It's nice that they have a three-game win streak, and it's nice. I'm really happy for Frank Schwindel because that that could rock your world. If you're a guy that kind of had to fight to stay here in the first place and then you had really cool success and you struggle at the start of the season to then – come back and say all right like let me let me prove my worth I'm glad that he is having some success Russ Dorsey is going to join me to talk baseball we'll talk about Tim Anderson we'll talk about the White Sox we'll talk about a little bit about the Cubs Chris Bryant's back on the IL with another back injury we'll talk about that all that and more in the weird ass twins next here on the score